Well, this week I was putting up decorations, <clears throat> front yard, along the sidewalk. We've got a little string of lights that we, that we do. Um, instead of decorating the house with a bunch of lights out front, Tried that the first year we moved into our house, and I got one of these big, long extension ladders. And I guess, what was that? About 16 years ago, I was in my 30s at the time. I thought, you know, I'm too old to do this. <laughs> so I'm definitely too old to do it now. So we don't climb on the roof any longer, but we do have uh, windows. And windows are great places to put lights because they're easy. You just put a light in the window. And so we've got several lights and the windows all over the front of the house. And you know what? That's good enough for out front for us. It's good enough. Inside, of course, there's the tree and all the decor that has to happen to, to make it look Christmassy. And honestly, the last few years that I've done this, uh, this ritual, it's been a bit of resentment in my heart. I mean, I've already got plenty to do. And then you've got to do all this Christmas decoration stuff. And before, before you know it, I mean, if you don't do it right after Thanksgiving, you don't have long to enjoy it before you got to put it all back up again. <laughs> and it, it sort of became for me what you might call a Christmas curse. <laughs> Just every year there's this curse for Christmas. And I just sort of resented it. But you know, this year has been a little different. And there's nothing else, you know, that's not with the, the COVID-19 that's caused a, a difference. It's just, for some reason, I thought, you know what, this year I'm going to, and it was this week that it all happened, I thought, I'm going to try a different mindset. And I thought, okay, what were these lights represent? They represent the glory. Let's just say they represent the glory of God. And as I'm putting the tree up, and you know, every year we've got one of these artificial trees, and every year more and more of it falls apart. And so it looks like the Charlie Brown tree after a while. <laughs> I just thought, you know what, I, what can I be grateful for? So a flippin' mindset really helped get rid of some of the curse of Christmas that I've, I deal with, uh, it seems like, every year. Because it's easy coming out of Thanksgiving as we overeat as we overdrink, by that I don't mean drink, but you just mean you drink, you know? A lot of cider. You overspend, you oversleep. I mean, we are over-overing everything. It's very easy to overlook what we're celebrating. The curse of Christmas is not just putting up lights and stuff and having to go buy a bunch of toys for people. I say toys. They are toys, I guess, in a sense of gifts for people. And that's a challenge. I don't know if you've noticed, but when people ask you, your family asks you, what would you like for Christmas? That is like the hardest question to answer. Because we live in a world where we don't need anything. You know, I just eventually say, buy me a book. I like to read. So, you know, what books have you enjoyed this year? Buy me two of your favorite books. That would be a great gift. And... Um, so we've got all these challenges, and I thought, you know what? It, it, it helps to just flip it and to let the mindset be on something different. Instead of uh, the gifts being a problem, thinking of gifts as worshiping the Lord. So it hasn't been a total uh, repentance in my heart away from the curse, but it's helped a little bit. Well, let's look together at the book of Malachi. 
And I've chosen that introduction about the curse for Christmas because Malachi is that. It is one that promises a curse for Christmas if things don't change in the nation Israel. Now, as we make our way through the series where we take a message from each of the 66 books of the Bible, we've sort of taken a bit of a, a, a roundabout route going through these 66 books. You might call it Route 66 because we've had to kind of go through this route in fits and starts with all the interruptions we've had this year. And uh, we could go through the very next book, which is Zechariah, but we're going to skip a few and go to Malachi because it's a little more pertinent for the season. Because Malachi definitely talks about the coming of our Lord. Malachi, and we'll look at chapter 3. So turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi, of course, is the last book in the Old Testament. It was the last prophetic book written, actually the last book. Old Testament book written chronologically was Second Chronicles, but Malachi is the last prophet. And remember the poetical books, the prophetical books, all of the books that are poetry and prophecy fit inside the books of history. So when I say Second Chronicles was the last book written, it was the last historical book written, and all of the poets and prophets and everything's fit in the historical books prior to that. So you can think of it also uh, in, in the sense of um, like the book of Acts. You know, you've got the book of Acts and the epistles of Paul sort of nestle their way down into the, the various chapters of Acts, or at least the, uh, the initial part of it. But Malachi, Malachi is the, uh, the third book. There are three books written after Israel returned to the land. So many of the, of the prophets warn Israel about leaving the land. If they don't shape up, you know, you're going to be taken out of the land. Well, we know that happened. And so then there was the books written before the exile, then there was the books written during the exile, like Ezekiel and Daniel. And then there were actually some Old Testament books written after the exile when they came back into the land. And the last three books of the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, were written to this post exile Israel. And again, we're not told here in Malachi, but Malachi and Nehemiah were contemporaries. And so if you think about what's going on in the time of Nehemiah, Malachi came just toward the end of that. So they're dealing with the same issues. And, and if you read Malachi and Nehemiah, you'll see some of the same themes uh, working there together. So Israel comes back into the land, but it's not like it was when they left the land. You remember when they left the land, Israel was still sort of autonomous. They were still, uh, in a sense, even though very flawed, they were in a sense a representation of the kingdom of God on earth. But uh, after the exile was taken out, began what's called the times of the Gentiles, where the Gentile nations now are overruling Israel. And so even when they come back into the land, they're not autonomous. They are overruled by Persia at this point, and then as time goes on, there'll be more Gentile rulers that uh, we'll talk about here in just a little bit. So they've been back in the land for about 100 years, and you'd think they would have learned their lesson. Uh, the good thing about their return to the land is that they never struggled with idolatry again. I mean, prior to the exile, it was all about idolatry. That was the great challenge of Israel. But 
have you noticed in history, when they got back into the land, they never struggled with idolatry. They struggled with hypocrisy, which in, in a sense is sort of idolatry, but it was never another God. It was the true God. It was just a hypocritical worship of that God. Well, the book of Malachi asks seven questions. We're not going to look at all seven, but these seven rhetorical questions are designed to kind of slap Israel out of its spiritual apathy and to get it, you know, sort of jumpstart it back into a walk with God that's genuine. The same walk that Nehemiah tried to get them to walk in, Ezra as well. And Malachi comes along again and is saying, you know, here, here are some questions that I'm going to ask you, and they're intended to make you think. We won't look at all seven, but we will look at one that's in chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3 is actually the answer, God's answer to the question. To look at the question itself, we're going to back up one verse and look at chapter 2, verse 17. So look at chapter 2, verse 17. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied him? There's the question. In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? So the question is asked, how have we wearied the Lord? And God says, I'll tell you how. You have wearied me by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, or God delights in them. In other words, God delights in evil. And then he rephrases the, the question once again, where is the God of justice? This is a question we've seen many times throughout the prophets. We saw it in Habakkuk. We saw it way back when we looked at Job. It's the question of, why does God allow evil? And God says, you're wearying me with this question. Uh, this is the question that Israel asks. And so finally, God answers this question in chapter 3. Here's the answer to the question of, God, when are you going to bring justice? Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, look closely at this verse, this verse 1, because the, words, the word Lord is written two different ways. At least I hope it's written two different ways in your Bible. In, uh, in my Bible, it's written, the first one is Lord, capital L, small o-r-d. This is a... Uh, the New American Standard, anyway, is very consistent in the way that it translates the Hebrew words. This is the English editor's effort to let you know. We've got two different Hebrew words here, both translated Lord. So capital L with small o-r-d is the divine name Adon, or it's the word Adon. We get our word Adonai from it. But here it's just the word Adon, which means master. It could be used of a human. In fact, it is used of a human in this instance. The Lord whom you seek, in other words, the one that you want to come bring justice, the Messiah, the Lord, we're told here, the one in charge, the one who is the ruler, that's what this word means, is going to come. And then the next word for Lord is down at the end of verse 1, the Lord of hosts. Notice that's written differently. That's got all caps. 
or you might say small caps. It's got a capital L and then small cap, O-R-D. Whenever it's written this way, it's a reference to the Hebrew word for God's divine name, Yahweh. So there's a reference to two different lords here. There's the Lord who is coming. This is the, the master or the Adon. And then there is the one who is speaking, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh. And so why is that significant? It's significant because we're told that the Lord, the Adon, the master, this human, is coming to his temple. Notice it says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, wait a minute. Whose temple is the temple? It's God's temple is the temple. So this human Lord, master, coming to his temple how is that even possible? It's, it's a hint, or at least the text is at least allowing for what we will come to later understand as the deity of Jesus Christ, that this one who is coming to his temple is indeed God in the flesh. Of course, Malachi isn't explicit here, but the language definitely allows for that interpretation. And we know that Jesus, of course, did come to his temple. He often referred to it as his father's house. But he came, uh, first of all, as a baby. Remember when he was dedicated? Uh, that, that day that uh, he came there in Simeon, made that great statement in, in the book of Luke. Jesus came with his parents several times a year up to Jerusalem for the feasts. We see one of those events when Jesus was 12. And then, of course, Jesus in his ministry came to the temple, again, for the feasts, most specifically during the Passion Week, the last week of his life. So we're told here that the messenger, I'm going to send my messenger there, verse 1. Malachi actually means messenger. And it's kind of neat that Chuck was talking about angels in the first service or in, the, in big church. He's talking about uh, angels in the Greek, angelos, means messenger. And here... Malachi's name means messenger as well. Malachi is my messenger. That's what the Hebrew name means. And so you've got several messengers here in this verse. First of all, you've got Malachi writing it, whose name means my messenger. And then verse, verse 1 says, I'm going to send my messenger. Or in the margin, it says angel, but it probably doesn't mean like an angel. It probably means messenger. It's probably translated well here. And it says that this messenger will clear the way for the messenger of the covenant. This is all in verse 1. Isn't it just amazing what you can get out of the Bible if you just read it slowly? There's some amazing detail. The Lord, the one who is coming to the temple, the one that you seek, this human master, is the messenger of the covenant. So we have Malachi the messenger promising that another messenger is going to come and prepare the way for the big messenger who is coming. So you've got three messengers here in this verse. You've got one who is coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so Malachi very clearly is putting this together. I like it that it says the Lord whom they seek um, is the messenger of the covenant. You know, People are seeking Christ even when they don't know they're seeking him. They're looking for the Messiah even though they don't know they're looking for him. 
Years ago, I read about a manger scene or a, a nativity scene up near Pittsburgh in which a family put it out in their front yard and they came out the next morning and someone had stolen the baby Jesus. And they figured it was a prank. And so they, wanting to do a prank sort of as well, put in the manger this big sign that said, Who Stole Jesus? Well, the next day, true story, the next day they came back and someone had put a note there and they read the note and, uh, let's see, I wrote it down. It said, the, the kidnapper said this, I kidnapped the baby Jesus doll from your front yard and I'm not giving it back until the kid's father allows me to win the lottery. The homeowner said that she read the letter several times before she figured out that this kidnapper was referring to God. <laughs> that, that you're not getting Jesus back until God the Father allows me to win the lottery. You know, obviously that's just sort of a sick joke. And, uh, but I thought, you know, that, that speaks as a good illustration in the sense of it sort of speaks for a failure to see the obvious. A longing for whatever the lottery is going to give you when you got Jesus right in front of you. We look everywhere but the obvious for the fulfillment of our desires. We look for our work to give us significance. We look for our money to give us security. We look for food and vacations to give us pleasure. We look for other humans to give us happiness. And yet, ironically, we're still empty. We can have all of these things, but without Christ, we're still empty. And even as Christians, that can be true. Not that we don't have Christ, but if we're not seeking him as the one, as the ultimate satisfy, uh, satisfaction for our lives, then even a, even a great spouse makes a lousy God. We look everywhere but the obvious for fulfillment. Malachi is saying the coming future is a coming person. The satisfaction that is the longing of your heart is met in a person. And that person is coming. In fact, he says, literally, there in verse 1, he is coming. But notice verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. Fuller. This is uh, where you wish that the New American Standard would get a little bit bit more. This is the 1995 version, and back then I don't think we used the word fuller a lot. Laundryman would probably be a better translation. This is is someone who washes clothes or does the laundry. This is the, when you go to take your, 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 your dirty jacket or whatever to the dry cleaners, and they use whatever they do to make it absolutely clean. Malachi is saying that when this Messiah, when this Lord comes to his temple, who's going to be able to endure it? You want him to come, but do you really want him to come? Because when he comes, who will be able to stand? He is like a refiner's fire. He is able to refine people. He is able to, he is like a fuller's soap in that he is able to cleanse people. Because people need cleansing. Everybody needs cleansing. Malachi says that when he comes, it's not going to be the great thing that you think it is, 
because it's going to be tough to stand before him. Now, we're in chapter 3. Look at Malachi chapter 4, and let's look at a few more verses that talk about not only this coming messenger of the covenant, the Messiah, but also the messenger who announces him. Malachi 4, look at the last three verses, starting in verse 4. Malachi writes, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I command him, commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. That's, that was Mount Sinai. Verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. End of Old Testament. Merry Christmas. <laughs> curse. That's the last word. And because it's the last word, Jews, even today, will go back and read verse 5 again. They won't end it on verse 6. They go back and read verse 5 again. It's that hopeful part about sending Elijah. But we're not going to end with the word curse. That is too hard. And it really is. It really is tough. Malachi calls the people to remember the law of Moses, verse 4. And I don't know, you know, when Jesus, when Jesus came on the scene, his call and John the Baptist's call was to point people back to the, the law. It says, repent, because the kingdom is not going to come to Israel until Israel repents. And the way that that happens is through obedience to the law. Remember the law of Moses. I love that reminder. I mean, here you have the end of the Old Testament as a clarion call to be in the scriptures, to remember the law of Moses. And by principle, that means the whole thing for us as believers, to not let the Bible slip from our dedication and devotion. I remember years ago when I was at seminary, this is back, good grief, 30, about 30 years ago, I guess, I was brand new in ministry at the time, and I was just a sponge. I mean, if the prof said it, I believed it, you know, and then, you know, then you'd read the Bible and you think, well, I believe most of it, of what the prof said. But I remember one time sitting there, and this was a professor who had been there a long, long time. It wasn't Dr. Toussaint. It was another professor who had been there a long, long time, whose name you would know, but I won't tell you who it was. And I was right there in front, you know, pencil in hand, and he was describing the crucifixion of Jesus, and he said, you know, when Jesus hollered out, uh, you know, to tell us die, it is finished, uh, that was a signal for Nicodemus to, you know, come get ready to take the body off the cross. And I sat there and thought, Really? And I started flipping through, and I thought, you know, I can't find that anywhere. <laughs> and I went up to him and asked him afterwards, I said, where'd you get that? And he said, well, you know, that's just, that's just what happened. And it sort of struck me then, I, I mean, obviously I made a mental note, never teach this. <laughs> but I also thought, I also thought, and I've seen it in the years since, and I've tried to be on guard of that against myself, myself as well and not be guilty of it. But here's, here's what was happening. 
And here's what I sometimes see happening as well, particularly for older Bible teachers. And particularly at holidays, where you're stuck with preaching the same Christmas story over and over, you don't preach the Word. You start reading other stuff. And this is what was happening there. The guy had taught this class so many times, he was bored with it. And so he had to bring other things into the text. I don't say that in any way to slam these teachers. I, I really am not. I'm, I'm saying this is something I've observed through the years. It's something I try to be careful of myself. And it's something I urge you to be careful of as well, as you've read the Bible many times. As you come to a passage that is very familiar to you, and instead of reading that, you want to, instead of spending time in the Word, you just want to re- go read some devotional and let that be your devotional time with God as opposed to the Scripture. Here at the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi says, remember the law of Moses. Be in the Word. And this is something that we here as evangelical Christians as well need to hear because there would no, there's nothing that Satan would love for us to do more than to get out of the Word and to substitute the Bible for anything else, even great teachers and reading what they think about the Bible as opposed to what the Bible actually says. So a great application for us here is to rededicate ourselves to the Word of God because if the people of Malachi's day had been reading and obeying the Word of God, Malachi's message would not have been needed, but it is, and we need it. We need the reminder to be in the Word because it is so easy to just start letting it slide and to assume we got it when all of a sudden you you find yourself out on a lake in thin ice and you fall through. It can happen. Return to the Word. Preach the Word. Preach the Bible. The last word of the Hebrew prophets here in Malachi is the word curse. And I love that in that context is also the word lest. Notice here it says, uh, let's see, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. There's another translation that says, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. It's the idea of, of Even now, there's hope. Even now, there's a remedy. There's an invitation that if you will remember the law of Moses, that if you will repent and come to me, the Lord says, you will be able to respond and be ready for when Elijah the prophet comes and prepares your heart for the Messiah. It's so ironic when you think about it, but the Bible begins with God's blessing in Genesis, and it ends with God's curse in Malachi, at least in the prophets here, our English Bibles. Well, let's look together at the next book, Matthew, and turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 11. Now, it's easy for us to turn a page. I literally have one page here, and I turn it, and now we're in the New Testament. But that one page represents 400 years of silence. Between the Old Testament, between the very end of Second Chronicles, 
uh, and the prophetic word of Malachi and the, uh, the events that took place beginning in the New Testament. It's 400 years, four centuries. I mean, think how old our country is, and it's, it can't even touch four centuries. This is a long time for God's people to wait. And they, they've waited. But during this time, it's not like God's just been sitting up there going, okay, we're going to give them eh, four centuries. That sounds good. No, God's been working behind the scenes. And if you look historically, you see God is very much active in the scene. We mentioned that Persia was, was the, the, the ruler over Israel at, at this time. In fact, Cyrus uh, was the one that allowed them to go back into the land. But then the, uh, the Macedonians or Alexander the Great uh, brought in the Hellenization of the world. So they're the next world conqueror. And guess what Alexander the Great did? He created, or created, he forced upon the world a universal language, Greek. And so now everybody has to speak Greek. It is the language of international trade. So now you have a language that everybody understands. Prior to this, that wasn't possible. Then the Romans conquered the, the Greeks. And then the Romans set up a universal highway system. All roads lead to Rome, yes, and they all lead from Rome, too, in the sense that you've got this, this crisscross network of amazing roads that you can go to Europe today and still see these Roman roads. And you can go to Israel and walk on these Roman roads. They built roads well, and it was so they could move troops, but the Apostle Paul also used these roads to get the message of the gospel. And he wrote the New Testament letters. The New Testament is written in Guess which language? Greek, because everyone could understand it. So you see, behind the scenes during this 400 years, it wasn't like God was just saying, ah, eh, we'll just give them 400 years and then we'll send Christ. He was preparing history to be ready for Christ. Universal language, everyone can understand. Universal highway system where the message can spread fast. And then he was also preparing by sending this messenger that Malachi promised. Matthew chapter 11 leaves no doubt who this messenger is. And you probably know who he is. Who is he? John the Baptist. Absolutely. Who is Elijah? The New Testament tells us clearly it's John the Baptist. Matthew 11, look down at verse 10. Matthew 11, verse 10. Jesus says, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. He's quoting Malachi there. Verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus leaves no room for doubt here. This Elijah is not the literal Elijah, but one who is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah, that is John the Baptist. And when he says here that all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, I love that because that reminds us that the New Testament really didn't begin until the cross. 
we turn the page and it says New Testament, and it's the New Testament in the sense of the book that's written that we call the New Testament, but the New Testament means new covenant, and the new covenant didn't begin until Jesus died on the cross. So when you read the Gospels, you need to think Old Testament in your mind because the Old Testament is still very much in, in full force, and Jesus' coming is the promised fulfillment of that. And he says, if you care to accept it, because there was major confusion over who this Elijah was. You remember when John the Baptist came on the scene, they came to John at the Jordan and said, are you the Christ? Nope, not the Christ. Are you Elijah? And this would have been a perfect time for John the Baptist to say, well, I am, but not the Elijah that you think. He just says no, because he knows what they were thinking. And then he says, well, who are They say, well, who are you then? And he begins to quote Isaiah. But Jesus is saying, if you can accept it, because there was major confusion over who this Elijah was and what it meant that Elijah was coming. It's not that Elijah himself would come, but Jesus clarified that, uh, who it was. Now, don't turn there because it's just sort of a cross-reference, but listen to what the angel Gabriel said to John the Baptist's father. Just let me read it from Luke chapter 1, verse 16. Speaking of John, Gabriel said, He will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and it is he who will go as forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So, again, it couldn't be clearer. Gabriel is quoting Malachi and saying that your son, speaking to John the Baptist's father, your son is going to be this forerunner, is going to be this messenger that prepares the way for Christ. And to turn the hearts of the fathers back to children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, this isn't an attempt to, to uh, bridge the generation gap between fathers and children. It's an attempt to bridge the gap that fathers and children have against God. It's bridging a spiritual gap, not a generational gap. Now, you're in Matthew 11. Turn a few pages to Matthew 17. And the plot thickens. Jesus is doing miracles. Some said that Jesus was Elijah. You remember that? When Jesus was dying on the cross and he cried out to his father. Remember the, the words of Jesus on the cross where he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? This is the Aramaic uh, calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But some thought that, he, that Eli, that he was calling to Elijah. So there's all kinds of confusion about Elijah and the anticipation of it. And Jesus does his best to clear it up, at least for the 12. Matthew 17, look down at verse uh, 10. Matthew 17, verse 10. His disciples asked him, Why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So finally, they understand that the Elijah to come is John the Baptist. But what they didn't understand that Jesus made plain here is that what happened to uh, Elijah or what happened to John the Baptist is also going to happen to me. This is why Jesus made this point. 
So the messenger, so what happened to the one the messenger proclaimed? They rejected John, they're going to reject Jesus. They killed John, they're going to kill Jesus. Same idea. I read about a university up in Pennsylvania that had a bell system, the, you know, the bells that rang out over the campus. They were programmed, and they were programmed with a special disc, and at Christmas, in years past, they would play uh, Christmas songs, you know, throughout the Christmas season. But people began to complain that these were religious songs. And so, because these religious songs are being played now, oh, and the Christmas season, they put together this holiday music from various religions and various cultures. <laughs> it's like, it's just, it, it's just amazing how things are shifting. Malachi's point is similar in that the nation in its current condition was not yet prepared for the Lord. God had to send a messenger to prepare them to get ready. And so a simple application for us, in addition to just rededicating ourselves to the Bible, is simply this, that our preparation for the coming of Christ centers on turning our hearts to God. Our preparation for the coming of Christ centers on turning our hearts to God. You know, the Old Testament prophets often took the coming of Christ, or you might say the, the comings, the two different advents of Christ, and put them together. And it takes the New Testament to sort of separate what was true about the two different, uh, the two different comings. And Malachi does this. Malachi talks about, you know, the, 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 the messenger of the covenant coming, but also he's going to clean house when he gets here. And this is why when John the Baptist sees Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, doing all these wonderful miracles, John's like, this isn't what we expected of the Christ. And so he sends and asks him the question. I went and got a haircut this week and uh, was supposed to meet with a group of guys right, right before the haircut. Anyway, but I, I asked my barber, hey, what's the earliest time you can give me a haircut? And he said, uh, 645. I said, great, I'll see you then. So I show up at 645 and there's, of course, nobody there but me and the barber, and we're sitting there, and he's, you know, he's cutting away, and, and we, we're catching up, and I ask him, um, you know, we're, how, something about the other barbers. He, there's several other barbers that usually work there when I come during normal hours, and he said, yeah, such and so, uh, this barber to the left, such and so, her boyfriend just got up from the recliner, and at 55 years old, had a heart attack and hit the floor dead. So we talked about that for a minute, and it was almost like, I don't know if you ever felt this sense of the Holy Spirit actually prompting you to say something, but it was like he was pushing me on the shoulder, share the gospel. And I just, you know, I had my little mask on, and I just said, okay, Lord. And so I, I, it was a perfect timing, because there was nobody else there. He wouldn't, the, the barber wouldn't have felt, you know, like embarrassed because other people are listening to our conversation about Jesus. And so I just said, you know what, isn't that amazing how we could just drop dead at any moment? We just never know if this will be our last day. He goes, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. And to my, I don't want to say to my shame, but 
I, I'm disappointed that I've been going to this barber for years, and this is the first time that I have explicitly shared the gospel. I mean, he knows he knows that I've you know that I'm in ministry, and, and that's why he kind of tiptoes around the subject sometimes. But I just I just said uh, I said his name, and I said, you know, how, how would you feel if you were to die today? I mean, if that happened to you, do you think you'd go to heaven? He said, you know, honestly, I don't know. And I just let that quiet, that answer soak in for a minute. Anyway, I just shared the gospel with him very clearly. Just, you know, we can't get there. I can't get there either by myself. Neither can you. Sin separates us from a holy God. But the good news of the Bible is that Jesus, God's son, died on the cross for our sins, took our penalty upon himself, and all we've got to do is believe it, and our sins are forgiven. No response. But I know he heard me. I know he heard me. And uh, the subject changed pretty quickly, and, um, but I know he heard me. And I just love that because it, there are opportunities all around us to just fly the Christian flag. And we want to not be jerks about it. You know, we want to be nice. And thankfully, he and I had sort of a, rep, uh, a relationship where he knew I'm not just some, you know, crazy religious nut. But I really cared about him. When John the Baptist came, he pointed to Jesus Christ and said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John pointed to Christ as the means of salvation. And if you're already a believer, you and I also can prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ. Not the first advent, but there is a second coming. And that second coming, though the second coming to earth is not uh, immediate, but what is immediate in that whole second coming campaign, you might say, begins with what we call the rapture, which could happen at any moment, where Christ comes for his church to take us to glory for at least seven years, where we'll be there in his presence while the earth, I was going to say enjoys, endures a horrible time of God's wrath, and God begins to deal with Israel as a nation once again in a very direct way. But we we have an opportunity to prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ, which could be today. And in a sense, we prepare ourselves, again, by our rededication to the Word, by our rededication to an application of the word. The words in Hebrew that Malachi wrote when he says preparing the way refer to clearing the obstacles out of the path. And when John the Baptist talked about he's the one in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord, it's the same idea, that you've got the king that's coming and you get all the rocks and stuff off the road. You move the rocks, you fill in the potholes, you make a smooth path so that when the king comes, there's nothing that gets in his way, that he can come. So John the Baptist's goal was to clear the rocks and fill in the, fill in the low places. Or as he quotes, I think he quotes Isaiah, and he says, the mountains will be made low and the low places will be brought up. You're preparing a way for the king. We do that. What is it? in your life, and I can answer this in my life, but I'll ask you personally, what is it that if Christ were to come today that's in the way in your personal walk 
with Christ? Maybe it's nothing, but it's a good question to ask. Um, you know, the curse of Christmas so often is that we have to, have to decorate and have to buy and have to do all this stuff that distracts us from the real message. And that, John the Baptist said so eloquently, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Barbers need to hear that message, and so do we. And we need to remember that message every day. I hope that you will take this as a good admonition, a good shot in the arm, a good pep rally, that um, the year that lies out before us is a year that you will remove the obstacles between you and the Lord and do that by a renewed commitment to, to being in the Word and committing yourself to the Word of God. The other books are great, but they, are, they, they go on top of the foundation of the Bible itself. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that you didn't end the Bible with a curse. The Old Testament ends with a curse, but the Old Testament is only half the story. Our Bible is one book, and the Old Testament sets up the problem that the New Testament so wonderfully solves, that the sin that separates us from you was laid on the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who took our sin that day on the cross and gives us the gift of forgiveness when we simply believe in him. Father, we pray for any uh, who are hearing this, these words or, or hearing this message and who are um, even in our lives in, in the weeks before us as we are around family that we don't normally see or perhaps others that we don't normally come across, that the clear gospel would be made known in a way that it would land on fertile soil and there would be salvation. Father, we pray that this season would not merely be another rote activity of trees and toys and even laughs and hugs, but that there could be true heart inspection personally in each of our lives to remove any impediments between us and our Lord, and renew our passion for the Word of God. For as Peter says, by it you grow in respect to salvation. Thank you so much, Father, for this scripture text we have because it points us to the truth, the one who came, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.